one of the things that we do in, in our parish gatherings in, in the homes throughout the week is we share a meal, we pray together, and then we typically go over the, uh, the sermon, open up the text, talk about what God was speaking to us, talk about uh, what he's speaking through his, through his word. And I just heard it was rich in a lot of, in a lot of ways and um, easily remembered. This is a bit, this text is a bit more, I don't know if I want to use the word fuzzy, but I would encourage you to, uh, you know, we do talk about the sermon every week, so in one way or another, typically. So if, if, uh, if taking notes will help you to come with some talking points and to help drive this down deeper into your soul and help you share and integrate this more into your life, then please do that. If you're on your phone, you have my permission. I'm assuming you're not texting. Uh, if you're taking notes on your phone, do that. But uh, it's, a rich, it's a rich text this morning. And where we are in the, in the book is, like I said, We've, we've done the birth of Jesus, why he came. He came for sinners. He came through sinners as a sinless Savior for us to save us sinners um, from God's wrath and from, from, our, from ourselves, from our sin and our despair. And, and then John jumps to how he was baptized at the beginning of his ministry in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. He says, permit it now for the fulfilling of all righteousness. And then he crosses through the Jordan, just like Israel did, sort of as a second Israel, as the true son of God, Israel. And he goes into the wilderness He's driven there by the Spirit, and he's tempted just like Israel was for 40 units of time, just like Israel was. And then he comes out of that temptation in power, having fasted and, and, and withstood the temptation of Satan in a dry desert place for 40 days. He comes into Israel, into Palestine, and he begins ministering in power, healing, preaching the gospel. I'm here. I'm the king. I'm bringing you into the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here good news, but kind of scary. What's going on here? Who is this guy? And then he gives us the first block of big teaching in Matthew, and that's where we are. But we're at the beginning of the block, and so this is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but this is the only bit that I'm teaching. As it, as it breaks down, we just, we're going straight to Matthew 8 next week. So I would encourage you this week to even take some time to read through the sermon, but I want to try to unfold this text, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, but also kind of give you a compass for reading through the sermon as well as I preach. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a, he's a hero of mine. He's one of the preachers that I, that I look to in some ways. He preached in London mid-20th century and, and up until, I think, 1969, died in 81. He, he takes three sermons on these four verses, okay, so bear with me. Give me, give me a little bit of grace and, and be patient with me as I try to get through this in about half an hour. Um, let's just start off where, where Jesus starts as he jumps into this sermon where he goes up on a mountain. I think before, before the days of amplification, there's a huge crowds that are already following him as he's ministering in power in Palestine. He's healing people. He's uh, healing, blind, bringing sight to blind people. He's raising up the crippled and the lame. He's delivering people of demonic possession. And he's already got this huge following. And so these, this rabble, this huge rabble just following him wherever he goes. And, he's, and he, his ministry is both power and word. It's always healing and also preaching the gospel. It's, wor it's word and deed. And so he's like, man, it's time to preach some truth to these people. Tell them what the kingdom of God is like. And to give them more of a clue as to why I'm here and who I am. So where are you going to go if there are 3,000 people around you? I mean, if I'm on a flat place and there's no amplification, I can't see anybody. So he goes up to a place where he can see everyone. They sit kind of below him. 
right? And they're gathered all around him, and his voice is going to carry as he's preaching sans amplification out loud, alto voce, you know, um, in a loud voice to these, to these people. And the first thing he says after the Beatitudes, which we're just totally skipping, I'll refer to him a little bit, okay? After this amazing opening with these blessed are the blank, 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 nine things, nine types of people that are blessed. He says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And then in verse 17, he says, do not think, 5.17, Matthew 5.17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. Now, why would Jesus say this here? Well, like I said, he starts his sermon off with the ultimate hook. He starts the sermon off with these nine types of people that are blessed, that are, a better translation might be happy. These are, the, these, are, these are the types of people that are happy in God's kingdom. Let me tell you what they are. And he starts off, blessed are the blank, okay? Now, Os Guinness describes Jesus, much of Jesus' teaching, and certainly the Beatitudes, as Jesus, and I think I've said this before, but Jesus goes to shake your hand, and you reach your hand out to shake his, and then instead of shaking your hand, he punches you in the gut. Poof! And so what, that's exactly what he does here. Blessed are the, well, you're, you're thinking, okay, blessed are the rich, the wealthy. They're clearly the people, the healthy, the health and wealth gospel, right? The people that are clearly doing well, God is smiling on them. They're getting what they deserve. They're living right. Jesus says the opposite of that. He says, blessed are the, not rich, poor in spirit. And then he goes on, blessed are those who mourn. He goes to shake your hand, and then he punches you in the gut. Boof! He just takes the wind out of you. So he's subversive. He's extremely subversive. He's surprising us all the time. He's telling us the opposite of what we thought we knew from the Bible, from the Old Testament. Okay? So that's the first reason that I think he starts this way. Hey, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Okay, let me, let me dig into that some more, though. Look at, again, how Matthew frames... This, 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 Jesus doesn't just start preaching from Matthew 1. We, we're Matthew, this is Matthew 5, and what has Matthew given us so far, especially if you weren't, haven't been here for this series? We've already talked about how Jesus, Matthew's setting Jesus up as the greater Israel, as the true son of God that Israel was called to be but never could measure up to because she was constantly disobeying, constantly disappointing God, constantly breaking his heart, constantly going after other gods, just like us. And here Jesus comes, and he obeys God from the heart, and he is God's true son in a way that Israel never was, okay? He's a greater Moses. So check this out. So miraculous, so Matthew's covered these things. He was born miraculously, just like Israel. He fled to Egypt because there was a ruler that was trying to murder him, in Jesus' case, Herod, in Israel's case, uh, Pharaoh. He came out of Egypt, just like Israel. He was... uh, he passed through the Jordan River, just like Israel did in passing into the promised land. Jordan passed, Israel passed through the Jordan River as the Jordan parted, just like it did with Jesus. He entered the wilderness, just like Israel, for 40 units of time and was tested like Israel during that time. And in the wilderness during those 40 years, Israel gets what from God? What does she get from God? She gets the law. If you go to Exodus 19... And following, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, and after that, a bunch of regulations, guidance for the, temp- the tabernacle and how to build it, which is sort of a, mo- a moving temple until the, the Israelites got into the Promised Land and could build a temple through, through Solomon. 
So God gives them the law in the wilderness. And what happens right after Jesus comes out of the wilderness as the tree of Israel? He goes up a mountain and he gets the law, as it were. But So he's, he's like Moses in this way, but think about the difference. So this is what Matthew's setting up. He wants us to see, and he wrote this really mainly for Jewish Christians. So this isn't, I mean, this, Jewish Christians are to see this. They're well familiar with what God has done in history through their people through, in the Old Testament. And Jesus, rather than going up the mountain like Moses to get the law from God and bring it down, and, and how was that seen? How was that environment? Was it something that every, there was just a party following Moses, you know, up the mountain to get the law? No. He went up there for 40 days and 40 nights. He fasted. He, he ate nothing. I don't even think he drank anything. The mountain, God came down on the mountain to meet with Moses and to give the law, and it was covered with fire. You go back to Exodus 19, you can read about it. Terrifying. It, lightning. It blackened the entire mountain. It just scorched it. Going up into God's presence as a sinful person is a scary thing. You have to be invited. You have to come in exactly the way God tells you. Only Moses can go up and his, and his servant Joshua. And for a time, the elders of Israel are brought up and they feast before God. Anybody else, any cow, any animal that comes close to the mountain, past these, things, these barriers that are set up or touches it, dies instantly, dead. You can't come into God's presence how you want to. You have to come into God's presence exactly according to the way he says, to, according to his word. So it's terrifying. And Moses goes up and he gets the law and he brings it down. He does, the law does not come from Moses' mouth. It comes from God Almighty, through Moses. But what happens here? Jesus goes up the mountain, and what does it say? Matthew, Matthew 5, 1 and 2. He opens his mouth, and he just begins giving the law. And one of the first things he says is, don't think that what I'm saying is the opposite of the law. No, 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 no. It's exactly in conjunction with, in fact, it's more than that. So what is Matthew showing us here? A bunch of things. One of them is, this guy is greater than Moses. He's something Moses never could have been. He is God himself. Come to the mountain, come to his people, approachable, unlike the God of the Old Testament. But he is that God, but he's somehow approachable. People are gathered right up around Homie, just sitting down, and he's just talking to him. But he's opening his mouth, and he is God giving the very word of God. The point is this. The point is this. Why is Jesus saying this? Don't think I've come to abrogate or break the law or abolish it. No, no, no. The point is this, Jesus is giving the law. He's showing us what it really means. Is it a new law? Man, you would think from how subversive Jesus is, he goes to shake your hand and he punches you in the stomach. You would think from the way that he goes on to preach the Sermon on the Mount, hey, you've heard it said, this is the law. No, 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 I'm telling you something different. You've heard it said this. No, 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 I'm telling you something different. You've heard this. It seems like he's giving you a new law, is it? No, Jesus says, um, now, at this point, you're tempted to think, I've come to overturn the Old Testament. Quite the opposite. I've come to show you what God really requires. Jesus' life, here's the first point if you're taking notes, okay? Jesus' life and teaching is in exact lockstep with the Old Testament. It shows us the true and profound meaning of God's revealed word. He shows us the true and profound meaning of God's revealed word. The rest of his sermon illustrates this. Now, I just want to take a sidebar moment to say, and I've said this a few times throughout our time together over these months, but if you hear a lot, uh, 
there's a God of the Old Testament. He's angry. He demands sacrifice. He's unapproachable. And then there's a God of the New Testament. He dies for us. He loves us. He came for us. Two different things. No, Jesus is blowing that up from the get-go in his first sermon. He's saying, no, there's absolute continuity. Don't think I've come to abolish that stuff. Instead, it, I, it, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill I've come to show you what it really means. I've come to bring its meaning to bear. So if we take one example from this, Matthew 5, 21 and following, the stuff that directly follows this text, where Jesus really just starts preaching. Take that first example, the first brass tacks elaboration of this principle in the Old Testament legal realm. It's on anger. It's on anger. And Jesus seems to say, okay, you've heard it say don't murder, and that's one of the Ten Commandments. That's, that's like law front and center. But I say to you something else. He seems to be changing or spiritualizing the law. He says, I say to you, if you're even angry with your brother unrighteously, if you even call him a fool or an idiot in your heart or out loud, you're in danger of hell. You just earn for yourself God's wrath. And that's where murder comes from, in a sense. Man, but Jesus, he's, not, he's showing us, no, this is, he's not looking at just the letter of the law. He's looking at what the whole law of God, the whole Testament really shows us about God. So, again, to take this example, you shall not murder. It's one of the Ten Commands. The commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as scholars sometimes call it, um, are sort of like the trunk of the tree or the roots, and the branches are the rest of the laws given in the Old Testament. So this is number six of ten of the Decalogue. Don't murder. It's two words in the Hebrew. It, there's not a lot of wiggle room. It seems very straightforward. Don't murder. Okay, good. I haven't murdered anyone. Check. I've kept that. Jesus says, no, sir. Now, it seems like he's, what's he doing? He's like sophistry. Is he a magician? Don't murder. Straightforward. No. He's reading, he's doing a good reading of this bit of perfect literature, of this word from God through Moses from the mountain. He's reading it in context. He's reading this command in light of the other commands and of, and of the context in which it was given to Israel in the wilderness. So look at the, just a short example of that. I won't elaborate too much, but look at the first and the last, you don't have to turn there, commandments in the Decalogue. The first out of the Ten Commandments and the last out of the Ten Commandments. Okay, God basically says in the first commandment, love, you shall have no other gods but me. Love me with everything you have. Worship one thing, me. I made you for that. I want, in other words, love is so much an interior thing. It has outward manifestations, but God is saying, I want your allegiance, I want your affections, I want your, your desire, I want your will, I want your body, I want your soul. It's for me. It's not for anything else that I've created. It's not for another person first. It's not for another thing. It's not for work. It's not for pleasure aside from me. I made you for me. Give me everything that you are. Don't have any other thing that you worship and bow down to. It's an interior thing. And then the last commandment, in, in ancient literature especially, first position was really important. First things, last things, middle things were extra important like highlighters. The last commandment of the ten. So that's the first commandment, no other gods. What's the last commandment in the Decalogue? You shall not covet. Totally interior. 
Does it have outward manifestations? Absolutely. But I could be coveting something egregiously right now. None of you guys would know it. But what that is saying is that God cares about this. He cares about the motivations. He cares about what's going on inside of your heart. And that casts itself. Because the first and the last are like that, it's saying it casts itself over everything God requires. Nothing is just external. I want perfect obedience from the heart always. It's what I require for life, for joy, for peace, for happiness. That's what God's law requires. So the good news of all this is that God is the kind of God who cares about our hearts. He cares about, would we want to worship, would we want the one true God to be a God who's just about externalism, who doesn't care about what's going on inside? Would you, that means he wouldn't really know us, he wouldn't really care about knowing us, he wouldn't care about what's going on in here, the inner dynamic, no. You enter a relationship, you want it with a spouse or with somebody that you really care about, you want them to care about this. That good news is that God is a God, he shows us through the law, He's a God who desperately and very much cares about this, about what is going on inside of your heart. The bad news about that is that we're in trouble, if that's true. We are in deep doo-doo, if that's true. Uh, Because we can't even outwardly keep the law, much less keep it from the heart. But Jesus is showing us That's exactly what God requires, and it shows his goodness. And I just want to plow into that again a little bit more through my second point, that good is not good enough, okay, a little bit more, and I I hope I've already shown that to some degree. Good is not good enough. Perfect, perfect external obedience, according to the law, is not sufficient. One commentator, he drills a little bit into the Pharisees' righteousness, their perfect external law observance that Jesus, he mentions, he says, unless your righteousness goes be well beyond that of the Pharisees, unless it exceeds the righteousness, the law-keeping of the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom. Scary. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were famous for their righteousness. Obedience to God's law was the master passion of their lives. They calculated that the law contains 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And they aspired to keep every single one of them, and they added to them to make sure that they were keeping those things. So they even tithed. Tom was talking about the tithe earlier, giving to God a portion of what he's given to us, giving back to God. They would even tithe their spices. So if I use like cinnamon on my, in my protein shake in the morning, I'm going to tithe, like I'm going to make sure that a tenth of that I don't use goes back to God. So, I mean, they, they kept it punctiliously. D.A. Carson says, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were among the most punctilious, you thought I got that word myself, in the land. (laughs) They were among the most punctilious in the land. Jesus' criticism is not that they were not good, but that they were not good enough. Salvation is punctilious rule following is bad news for us. Okay, just even forget the whole, it's more than that. Even if we just say it requires exact obedience to the external law as it seems to be. That's bad news. Literal obedience to rules and regulations, if that's what's required and that alone, we're still all damned before a righteous God. But as it is, it's inadequate. Because 
punctilious rule following as our salvation, it externalizes the law. It means that everything I just talked about, about the law actually requiring something from your heart, your desires and your will and your affections, it disregards that, and it makes the law somewhat keepable, which is what the Pharisees had done with the law. It makes it somewhat keepable, according to the, our own system. Um, and it has to be that way. If obedience, if my obedience to the law is my salvation and the only way I'm to be saved, we have to externalize it. It's the only possible way that we'll be saved. And um, if I can't obey it, then I'm, I'm dead in the water. I have no hope. And what about when I break that law? What's to be done there? If, if obedience to the law perfectly from the outside is my salvation, what happens when I, when I break it? Um, Islam is really an externalized religion. It's complete obedience to the law. It's law-driven. And it has to be that way. It has to externalize our means of salvation because, because um, it doesn't, there's no mediator. God is not triune. There's no son that was sent to keep the law in your place and to die the death for law-breaking that you deserve, that I deserve in your place. So because of that, I, there has to be a way for me to measure up to God on the outside. Because if I drive down and say, also your desires have to be fully perfect, there's no possible way. I don't have a mediator that can come and give me new affections, give me new desires. I have to have something keepable by me. So it actually trifles with God's requirements. It doesn't, it, uh, Muslims will often brag, actually Christians, you lower God's requirements. No, no. Islam lowers God's requirements. It just says, this is all God requires. It's all on the outside. We have to do that if we look to our own performance as a means of salvation. But Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. God cares about your heart. God cares about your heart. So bad, bad, good news because it talks about the kind of God God is, but bad news for us if we're honest. Really bad news. And that's what every religion, or if I can say every false religion does, it externalizes things. This, do this, this, and this, and this is how you can be okay with God. And they're really attempts of controlling God. If I do X, God, what you require of me, then I get Y. Then you owe me Y. Okay? It puts sort of me in the driver's seat. If I do this, then you have to give me what you promised. Okay? So, then if I get suffering or I get loss or I get privation, then I'm mad at God because, God, you didn't deliver. What's up? So it actually puts God in my debt, which just isn't anywhere in the Old Testament. It's also a way of managing sin. It treats sin as a, as a way of thinking. We think about sin as totally external. It's what I'm doing Okay, I'm breaking a law or I'm not doing. I'm doing, I, I should be doing this thing, but I'm not doing it. So that's, that's what sin, sin just becomes something that I'm doing or not doing, totally external. As, as opposed to a, a matter of being, who I am, my desires. And again, like I said, the bad news is that Jesus actually demands much more, a keeping of the law from the heart. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom. You must be perfect. As somebody said in our prayers earlier before the gathering, which we always pray at 945 before the gathering, we would invite any of you to come. That's where the power comes from. Please come and join us. But somebody said, you know, you have to be perfect. 
to be with God. God can't just wink at sin. He can't, even if, if you break a law and there's no mediator, how you can't do enough good stuff to make up for the fact that you've just broken that law. So uh, it just doesn't work. We have to be perfect, not only on the outside but on the inside, to be with God. He can't wink at sin. It has to be paid for. And if we have no mediator, then we have to pay for it, and then we're damned. You see how intractable that is? We need God to be holy. We need God to care about what's going on inside. But that's the worst news for us because we can't stand before that. It just that it can't happen. One commentator says, Jesus came to bring a radical interiorization. Um, those who can do no more than simply keep the rules won't come close to making the cut. And like I said, the whole Old Testament broadcasts this very fact. Just like I've taken that one example that you, Jesus starts, basically starts his sermon, his elaboration at this point off with, with anger. The Decalogue says don't murder, but that means so much more. It's really saying don't even be unrighteously angry with your brother. Don't demean him. He's made in God's image. When you do that, it leads to, I mean, you don't just go out and murder somebody. You don't just go, hoot-de-doo, you know, and then all of a sudden I find myself putting a knife into somebody's chest. It just doesn't, it does, murder does not work. Like, where does murder start? It starts with resentment, envy, anger, wishing that person dead, and it leads to action. And that's what Jesus is tapping into. That's what Jesus is tapping into. So, and, and, and he, if I can just, okay, here's my opportunity, right? I've only got these four verses, and then we go to Matthew 8 which I can't wait for because it's amazing how Jesus comes off the mountain. What a contrast to how untouchable and unapproachable seemingly God was in the Old Testament. And I can't wait. But, but I just, in the next 30 seconds, fast forward you through the rest of the content of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus goes from talking about anger in 521 and following to lust, to divorce, to oaths, making oaths and vows and promises. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. Retaliation, people that we have a grudge against that have really wronged us. Loving your enemies, giving in secret, praying in secret and simply, unlike people that pray just to be heard. Fasting, where is your treasure? Are you building up barns and filling them for yourself here on earth? Are you, sending, are you paying forward, are you sending your stuff forward to where moth and rust can't destroy? Anxiety, judging other people, and then asking for things. Hey, you think, I mean, you ask for something from your parents who are evil, Jesus says, and you don't think that, you think a kid, my, Susu, my little two-year-old daughter, you think she's going to ask for, a, what does she ask for? Apple pause. She calls applesauce apple pause. Apple pause. She always does it as a stall whenever I'm putting her to bed. Apple pause. And uh, you think I'm going to give her, I'm going to bring in like a snake? Ha <laughs> ha! You asked for apple pause, but I got a snake for you. You're dead. Sorry. No, I'm, that's ridiculous. Jesus says, only the, no, not even the worst dad would do that. And I'm evil. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm, I'm, I'm depraved in and of my flesh without the intervention of Christ. And yet still, I love my daughter. I'm not going to give her a snake when she asks for apple pause. Jesus says, how much more in asking? Now, see, whenever you say applesauce, now you're going to think apple pause, and it's going to drive you crazy. Um, I'm not going to. So Jesus says, your father is so good, he's going to give you, just ask him. He delights to give you good things. So that runs us through the entire rest of the sermon, but all of that is showing us, I mean, think about it, anxiety, 
judging, lust. I could go on and on and on. Where's your treasure? What spring do you live out of? What do you live for? He's showing us that what God requires, it comes from here, and it matters, and God cares. And he's come to transform. He's come to transform not just the way that we behave, but our desires and our affections. How is it possible to live like this, Jesus, this kind of kingdom? People that live, this is what kingdom citizens' lives have to look like, not just external observance, but from the heart. Jesus is saying this in the sermon. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what kingdom citizens are going to live like. How is it possible to live like this? It's not. That's one of the big takeaways. It's impossible as we are coming to Jesus, impossible without intervention to live this way, to be this way. Okay, I want to move into this. Jesus came, I'm just going to give it to you up front and then dig in a bit. Jesus came to fulfill the outer, this is where the good news starts. Jesus came, he says in this text, to fulfill the inner and the outer requirements of the entire Old Testament. So let's dig in a bit. He says again in verse 17a, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus did not say, I came to fulfill. He says, but I, rather I've come to fulfill them, the law and the prophets. Okay, I haven't come to abolish, I've come to fulfill them. First, he did not say, I've come to fulfill the law. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So you're like, so that's okay, that's a little different. No, it's a huge difference. He's not just saying, I came to fulfill or keep the laws that say do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. He's not saying that. He said the law and the prophets, which was an, a, a clear way to any Jew that heard it. If you go to Luke 24, when Jesus is risen from the grave and he's talking with his disciples on the Emmaus Road, what does he say? He says, it says he walked them through the scriptures. He walked them through the law, it says, and the prophets. And he showed them how he, they all pointed to him and he came to fulfill them all. And it had to be this way, therefore. He had to die. He had to resurrect because that's what the Old Testament pointed to. In other words, the phrase law and the prophets is a merism. It's a short way of saying the law start the Old Testament and the prophets end the Old Testament. There's one other third bit. It, the Jews talked about the entire Old Testament with three titles, three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So you would just leave out the middle sometimes as a shorthand way of saying the entire Old Testament or the entire Hebrew Bible, the law and the prophets. Sometimes they would just say the law when they meant the entire, it's sort of a, a part that, it's a synecdoche, it's a part that speaks for the entire whole. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying I came to just do all the law for you. He's saying I came to fulfill the entire revealed word of God to this point. Wow. Okay, so that's huge. And secondly, Hebrew thought and language was parallelistic. So, it's a chief aspect of Hebrew poetry and also of Ugaritic, Hittite, other ancient Near Eastern poetry. So rather than rhyme or assonance or some other, or meter or some other aspect of poetry being the chief characteristic, it's really like, okay, this and then kind of this again with a, a bit of a variation. And so whenever, and in, in Jesus speaks in a very Hebraic, poetic, parallelistic way oftentimes. He repeats himself, he says something one way, and then he says it almost the same way, but with a bit of variation. And one of the keys to understanding Hebrew thought is, when you read the second bit that's repeated, you look for, 
what way is this not exactly parallel? And there, the meaning of that is often in that. So what does Jesus say here? Is it exactly parallel? No. Knowing the way that Jesus speaks in Hebrew thought and language and parallelism, we're expecting, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to build them up. That's the exact parallel of to abolish. To build them up, to support them. That's not what we get. That's not what Jesus says. He says something just slightly off-center, just slight enough that we kind of miss over it, kind of gloss over it and keep reading, but it's important. He says, I did not come to abolish the law or, and the prophets. In other words, I did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Not to support it, but to fill it or to fulfill it. I came to fulfill the Old Testament. So he's not saying I came to just do, do all the rules. Okay? He's saying I came to fulfill the entire revealed word of God. He's not saying I came to do away, I did not come to do away with the Old Testament, but to obey it and make sure you do too. He's saying more, something much, much more provocative, and I want you to hang with me here. He's saying this. He's saying, I, am the re- I came to fulfill the entire revealed word of God. I, I, am the reason, I am the reason the Old Testament exists. Can you imagine Jesus sitting on that hill in Palestine, saying those words? How shocking. I am the reason. You're looking at the reason that that entire revealed word has been given to you, Israel, the people of God. I am sitting here with you talking. Let me explain the word fulfill. I came to fulfill the Old Testament, not to abolish it, with an illustration of a a glass. So a a simple glass, like in your pantry, that you would take out and put juice, water, whatever, in. What's the reason for the glass? What's its reason to trade? Why does it exist? Yeah, to hold the liquid, to contain, to be filled up. That's the reason, otherwise, that's the reason it was made. It was made to be filled up with something that you go ahead and drink. That's why it exists. What Jesus is saying, it's the same exact word. When he says, I came to fulfill the Old Testament, it's the same common Greek word for fill. In other words, I, the Old Testament is a glass. It's useless. It's pointless, apart from me. I fill it up. I am the reason that the entire written word of God and all the history therein happened for me, because of me. My shape is the exact shape of the Old Testament. That's why when we start with the Gospels, they are constantly going back to the Old Testament because we can't understand the Gospel. We can't understand the coming of Jesus Christ without understanding the Old Testament. So he's not saying, I fulfill the law as I keep the commands, but I fulfill the law and the prophets as in I fulfill the entire Old Testament. It's shaped like me. Not only is he saying it's worthless without me, he's saying it's worse than worthless. It's harmful. Because what does Paul say in Romans chapter 2 and elsewhere? He says, he says um, we're only held accountable by God who is just for what we know. We're only held accountable by God for what we know. And if we know, if we're revealed what God expects precisely in the Old Testament and Jesus doesn't exist, all of a sudden we are way more accountable and way more guilty before God. Way more guilty. So the whole Old Testament puts us under the bondage of what's required of us, but we, can't, we cannot do it. And Jesus comes along and says, I have come to fulfill that, to fill it up, start to finish for you. 
some examples of that without just bypassing the, the exact prophecies, of which there are many in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills, like in the Psalms and Isaiah and elsewhere, um, just a few examples of, of huge ways in which Jesus actually fulfills the Old Testament revelation. He is the second Adam. He, he is the, the Son of God. Adam was called the Son of God, who was uh, not created by God, but who, um, who was made in God's image. So Jesus is in God's image as God's Son, and he is to have dominion over all the earth and, and to, to fill it, okay? He's, he's put, Adam's put in a garden land. He's told to obey God. Um, the, his obedience kind of comes down to a tree. He disobeys God in his word. He trusts Satan instead. He gets kicked out of the garden, and all of humanity suffers as a result and comes under the curse, and he loses dominion. Jesus comes along as God's son. He's told to obey from the heart. His obedience centers on a tree, the cross. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. He obeys God in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, from the heart. And he is, rather than blessed, cursed in our place. Okay? As progeny of Adam, he is cursed in our place. He's driven into the wilderness of sin and hell for us. And we are brought, through his obedience, into the garden. He is the second Adam, as Paul says in Romans 5. And as I've been saying, he is the true Israel, the true son of God, who did what Israel couldn't do. Israel was brought into the promise, into a garden land, told to obey God's word. If you do, you'll be blessed. Fill the land with my image. They didn't. They disobeyed God. They were driven east out of the garden. Jesus, the opposite of that. He comes. He obeys God from the heart. He's driven into the wilderness through no bad of his own through, because of our sin. And he obeys God from the heart. And he is uh, put on a cross. And we are brought into promised land, into the promises of God through his obedience, okay? Um, he is, the whole Old Testament, in a sense, the whole law was built around the cultists, was built around the temple, the priest, the sacrifice. Jesus, the temple is the place where God and man meet in peace. What is, what is Jesus but that? He's so much more, but he is the place where we meet God in peace. Why? Because a sacrifice is made. Something innocent dies in our place so that we can go on living. Jesus, who is it made by? The priest who offers the sacrifice. Jesus offers the sacrifice of himself as the priest, offers himself as the place where God and man meet. He is the temple. He is the sacrifice. He is the priest. Um, the Old Testament's greatest salvation event was the Exodus. Whenever the salvation of God and the power and the grace of God are talked about in the Old Testament, it's always creation and then Exodus. God brought Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and uh, into a good land, into a promised land, through no good of their own, with his mighty hand. And Jesus, uh, he, what does he do? He brings us out of slavery, not the slavery of the iron furnace of Egypt with taskmasters with literal whips, but of our own sin, of our separation from God, of our judgment by God justly because of our sin, of the punishment for that, of hell, of despair, of guilt. Jesus takes all that for us. Um, our, ours is the true exodus in Christ. He brings us into a good place, into a place of favor and prosperity. Um, he is the greater Moses, as I've talked about, who leads the people that are in bondage into life. And he is, um, there's a sense in which Paul says in Corinthians and elsewhere that the creation was wonderful. The recreation event through the salvation of Jesus Christ, where he speaks light and life into us, and they go out from us into a dark world, is an even greater recreation event. So Jesus, in so many amazing ways, he fulfills all these things. 
He, he is the reason they exist. The Torah then, this is a quote, is not God's last word to his people. The Torah is the law of God. Sorry, it's the first five books of the Old Testament. But is in a sense provisional, looking forward to a time of fulfillment through the Messiah. Okay, I'm going to stop there with that. Now, and I just want to say, it is all about Jesus. Everything before Jesus, all the space and time and history, all of God's revealed word was for Jesus Christ. And the same is the case in our lives, in our marriages, in our work. So in our marriages, if you're, about, if you're, if you're like, man, it's all about my spouse, it's all about loving her or him, and, or it's in my relationships if I'm single and it's all about loving people around me, this is so true, it is about loving them, but man, it's, if you forget the it's all about Jesus, I came to fulfill every aspect of life, everything is for me, you're going to miss the boat, man. You're going to make idols out of whatever it is, whether you're your spouse, the people around you, relationships and seeking people's approval, your workplace. Um, no, everything is fulfilled in him. And as I abide in him and look to him and see that he is the reason for all of my work, he is the reason for my relationship with my spouse. He's the reason for my relationship with everyone that he's put around me. He's, he's the reason for my leisure time. He's the reason for everything I do then everything finds its proper place. And we read the Old Testament in the same way. Just like I've enunciated, for instance, with the story of David and Goliath. True story, 1 Samuel 17, if you haven't read it. We often read it as this puny little shepherd guy, he has a slingshot and he faces the giant and he kills the giant and man, be courageous like David. But if we take Jesus' words here seriously, we're going to realize that actually it's all for him. It's all to him. It's all pointing to him, getting us ready for him, showing us something about him. How does this story do that? It really happened, but God made it such that one man, David, goes to fight representing an entire people, Israel. And whatever happens with him, they all get the benefits of. And by faith in God and in God's word, he trusts God from the heart and he he emancipates Israel. He sets them free. They would have been slaves to the Philistines if, if Goliath had won. Jesus, as our representative, slays a much greater deadly giant of hell and sin and death and despair and guilt before a just God. And he sets us free. So this is, this is what he shows us. Um, in closing, let me just touch a few things, okay, and then we're out. The good news Again, not only did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament for us, guys, but the good news is that he came to make us a new type of person. Not just to obey things in our place, but to give us new desires, his own spirit, to make us a people who actually can stand before God righteous and who can desire to obey God and to love him from the heart. He gives us his own heart. He gives us his own spirit when we trust in him and look to him. He makes us, he came to make us kingdom citizens that can live in this way because of who he is and what he's done. That's the good news of the Sermon on the Mount. It drives us to a point of despair of ourselves, of keeping the law externally, certainly internally. And it drives us to a place where we realize, no, this God who has come to us, who is totally accessible, has lived a life of perfect obedience from the heart in my place. He has died a death that he didn't deserve, but I did in my place. And he has come to give me his desires to give me his record, to give me his relationship to God so that I can have peace with God and so that my life begins to be transformed and goes out into this world and lays myself down 
for others, knowing that I have been given everything and so I can just lay my rights down. At work, with my colleagues, at home, with my spouse, with my kids, in my relationships, um, in everything that I do. And, and then as that new person in Christ, in our daily interactions, flows out of us, Christ goes out from us and actually changes atmospheres, changes people, rebuilds devastation, enters brokenness and lostness and darkness and changes things. And, and what a wonderful, as Chris said, as Tom said, what a wonderful sort of uh, place to be saying this from right on the eve of Martin Luther King Day. Well, we, we saw some of that 50 years ago played out in a, racial, a very racial arena and to be that kind of people because of what Christ has done. Um, Thomas, I'll end with this. The whole testament points to the day when, we, when a, a people could not just be a people in outward conformity to the law, which we can't anyway, but who would actually, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, be a people who desire God and keep his law from the heart. Being a Christian isn't about doing this, 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 and this. It's about having a, being restored to God Almighty through the work of another and being given something completely new inside. It's being qualitatively new. That's a miracle. It can only happen through the work in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not religion. It's not do this, this, and this, and then. That's, it's just not. It's not. It's that God has come down to do it all for us and to bring us into a relationship that actually makes a difference as we are kingdom citizens in this kingdom of heaven, where our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And it does indeed if we are in Christ, okay? Thomas Chalmers finished with this. I've mentioned him before, but he was a 19th century Scottish preacher. And he preached a sermon that, again, I've said before, it's the best sermon title I've ever heard. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And that, I feel like, crystallizes what Jesus has come to bring us into. If you are trying to defeat sin or despair or whatever it is that's causing you guilt and distress or to get right with God in such a way that you're just trying to say no to this, no to that, that's not the way God made you. Okay? God made you to say yes. He is, Psalm 16, he holds pleasure forevermore in his right hand. He is the God of pleasure. He created sex. He created food. He created everything for good and for fulfillment in our lives. Okay? But we take those good things and we make them ultimate things and we bend them and we become bent on the inside. The only thing that's going to solve that problem is something that's more powerful than the things we're running after in a wrong way that pushes those things out and gives us a greater affection for what we're created for. And what Thomas Chalmers says is, there's the expulsive power of a new affection, a greater affection. What we were made for is Jesus Christ. To desire him and through him to desire other things that he gives us in their proper place. This is life. This is what he came to bring us into. This is the kind of citizen, kingdom of heaven citizenry that he um, is talking about here and trumpeting on this hillside. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian and politician, says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. How does this new affection, how does this new relationship, how does this restoration that's all him received by us 
through faith. How does it play itself out in mathematics, in engineering, at your work, in your home with your kids, with your spouse, with your friends, here but out into this community that God has called us to, abroad, wherever you are, sleeping, having sex, eating, I don't care what, trimming your lawn, working on your crabgrass, I don't care. There is no exempt area. There's not a square inch that's exempted from this king who came to bring us into his kingdom. It's all worship. It's all worship, and he came to bring us there. If you are trying to get there on your own in any sense whatsoever, stop it. Stop it, like Bob Newhart says in that hilarious skit. Just stop it and come to him. And now at this table, we have a chance to do that again. Um, Instead of closing in prayer, which I always do, let me just run straight to this for the sake of time, okay?